0: 13 in your Bible, then uh, stand with me and let's read it. Verses 4 through 6 this morning, 4 through 6. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that uh, you are loving and gracious, and uh, Lord, that you are uh, sustaining And, Lord, we, of course, uh, continue to pray for uh, Molly and Gary and Rick and Patrice and the family, and we pray that you would just be near to them and supply what they need as they walk through uh, this painful experience. But, Lord, we also, Lord, just thank you for the hope we have in Christ, that we uh, have the assurance of eternal life, that we uh, know that we will be with you forever, according to your word. And, Lord, we pray for those that do not know you. We pray that uh, they would come to understand the truth of the gospel and uh, put their faith and trust in Christ alone. And, Lord, we thank you that we can worship you, that we can gather in your name, that we can uh, be together as uh, the body of Christ in fellowship with one another and encourage one another in the faith. And, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to worship. And, Lord, we know that's so important, As you are worthy, and, uh, Lord, you alone are worthy. And so, Lord, we want to worship you this morning in spirit and truth. And we uh, give our our gifts, we sing our songs, uh, we focus our hearts on you, and uh, we exalt uh, your name. So, Lord, we pray that uh, you would be pleased and that you would bless everything that goes on in this place today uh, by your hand And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most fundamental assumptions for those who hold a high view of the authority of Scripture is that there is a bridge of relevance that connects the ancient text and the application of that truth in our day and time. But this presupposition has been challenged by modern scholarship. There are those today who believe it is impossible to get an objective reading of any ancient text and that the original meaning has been totally lost to us. So, they say, we have to read in our own meaning for today. And when it comes to passages that deal with ethics and morality, there are many today who have concluded that the morality represented in these ancient texts belongs in a museum and is completely irrelevant to modern times. So in Hebrews 13, we have to ask the question, why do we believe that the prescriptions concerning hospitality, sexual ethics, material possessions, and following church leaders should still be heated today. Guthrie writes, perhaps the most graphic example of this question is in the area of sexuality. He says, for many in our modern culture, the sanctity of the marriage bed is a non-issue. Adultery and sexual immorality are so widely accepted in the Western world as to barely raise a yawn, much less an outcry. He adds, in some circles, the love of money is seen as a virtue rather than a vice. And in a democratic society, who wants to talk about submission to leaders or anyone else? And for many in our modern world today, it does no good to say the Bible says so. This, of course, is why there is such a war over morality today. And yet, for a Christian, the Word of God must be our standard. It is impossible to have any reasonable ethical standards at all apart from divine revelation and as guthrie puts it the moral guidelines found in hebrews 13 are grounded not in a person's existential sense of morality but in a covenant relationship with jesus christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever changes in the winds of cultural, social thought, do not change God's moral standards. So these commands are just as relevant to us today as they were when they were first written. Hebrews 13 deals with the subject of Christian ethics, and in particular, verses 4 through 6 tackle the issue of Christian ethics as it relates to individual believers. You know, when it comes to ethics, if you can deal with the issues of sex and money, you have taken care of a large part of Christian morality. That's essentially what the author of Hebrews does here. Beds and bankrolls can never be separated from Christian theology. And the life of the spirit and the life of the street must be integrated together as vital elements of the Christian life. So let's move into this passage, and we're going to look at three important elements today. Commitment, contentment, and confidence. Let's begin by looking at the subject of commitment. Specifically, we're talking about commitment to marriage and sexual fidelity. There is a connection here between the previous section and this one. Herschel Hobbes explains, not only should all Christians suffer when one suffers, as in verse 3, but all Christians are either honored or shamed when one is honored or shamed. And so all Christians should so conduct themselves as to bring honor to Christ and his body. There is honor in the marriage relationship. But many have brought shame to the body of Christ through sexual infidelity. Christian ethics deals with this important issue. And that is what the author of Hebrews begins with here. Look with With me again at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, there are two critical aspects to this commitment to marriage. First of all, there is commitment in principle. In principle. Notice again the first phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all. It is God's will for marriage to be understood as something honorable. Marriage was established by God himself at the creation of the world. It was clearly established as a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. And it is the foundation of human society. But of course... Marriage has come under attack in our day and time. Our world wants to take that which God established as honorable and make it something that is anything but honorable. For a lot of people today, marriage is simply a convenient, temporary living arrangement. Some have pushed for the immoral concept of same-sex marriage. And clearly, God's plan for marriage is under attack. But we in the church must cling to his design. We must continue to see marriage as something honorable. Now, there are some things that we need to note about the actual text here. First of all, in the Greek text, there is no verb in the first phrase. It has to be supplied. So what this means is... It can either be in the imperative form or the declarative form. In other words, this could either be a statement or a command. It could read, marriage is honorable, or it could read, let marriage be honorable. Now, it's likely that it should be taken in the imperative form because the Gar Clause at the end says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So the command here is to make sure you hold marriage as something honorable. On the other hand, if in fact it is taken in the declarative form, it would mean that that since God has declared marriage as something honorable, that's how we should treat it. Either way, we are to understand marriage as something honorable in the sight of God. The word for honor there is the Greek word "timios." It can mean respect or something precious or very valuable, something highly esteemed. And there are other uses of this word in the New Testament that include uh, the value of material possessions, such as the precious stones that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3.12. Or a respected leader like Gamaliel in uh, Acts 5, verse 34. Or the promises of God, as God talked about in 2 Peter 1, 4. Or even the blood of Christ, as Peter mentioned in 1 Peter 1, 9. All of these things are precious, they are extremely valuable. And the bottom line is that it is clear. The Word of God declares that marriage is something that should be seen as extremely valuable. The first phrase of verse 4 may have been in response to the influence of the ascetics of that day, who claimed that celibacy was a holier state than marriage. MacArthur points out that some men, such as the famous origin of the first century had themselves castrated under the mistaken notion that they could thereby serve God more devotedly. But the author of Hebrews counters that notion here. He says that marriage is something that is to be held in high esteem. It is not inferior to celibacy. I can't resist this quote from Dr. MacArthur. He writes, God, the Father, honored marriage by establishing it. Jesus honored marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding. And the Holy Spirit honored marriage by using it to picture the church in the New Testament. It says the whole trinity testifies that marriage is honorable. No person, therefore, is justified in disparaging marriage marriage. Paul warned that in the last days there would be false prophets who would forbid marriage. But this is something we should never do. Marriage is something highly esteemed by God and is something that should be highly esteemed by us as well. But we need to move on to a second aspect of this commitment of marriage. Not only must there be Commitment in principle, there also must be commitment in purity. In purity. Look with me at verse 4 again. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Listen, God is serious about sexual purity, and we must be as well. Our world has gotten to the place where sexual infidelity is no big deal. But I promise you, it is a very big deal to God. There is a promise here that God will, in fact, judge sexual sin. Paul teaches the same thing. In Ephesians 5, 6, he says, "...let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What things, Paul? Well, in verse 5 he says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The word for immoral person there is the word pornos it means a fornicator 1st Corinthians 6:18 he wrote flee immorality porneia fornication he says every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body interestingly Sexual sin is not only against God and against another person, but it is also a sin against yourself. It can bring serious consequences against your own body. There are horrible physical consequences that can come from illicit sexual sin. But beyond that, this particular sin brings an enormous amount of guilt which can produce other adverse effects. And some have pointed out that sexual sin can be the most destructive type of sin because it goes to the very core of your being. But the warning of Scripture is that this is nothing we should take lightly at all. And it's interesting when you compare the biblical terms with the way the world refers to this. The world calls it having an affair. The Bible calls it immorality. The world may talk about playboys, but the Bible calls them whoremongers. That's a vivid King James word. They're fornicators, adulterers. Folks, let's not buy into the world's sugarcoating of this. God says this is something serious that will be judged by him. So we should never take it as some sort of trivial thing that everybody is doing. And the bottom line is that the Bible declares within marriage, sex is a beautiful thing intended by God to enhance the marriage relationship. But outside of marriage, it is an ugly, destructive, and even damning sin. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.3, do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Don't even let any of this be named among you. Don't even put yourself in a situation where someone could accuse you of being guilty of a sexual sin. Don't be, bring shame to the name of Christ by getting involved. In something like this, we must never give the world an opportunity to blaspheme God, to laugh at God because of our sexual sin. We're never to bring shame to the name of our Lord because of it. Jay Adams writes, it's time to say something about the fact that God is not going to overlook adultery. He says, while it is possible possible to be forgiven, nevertheless, that fact should never be used to make light of this sin or to excuse it. The fact is, God hates adultery. It destroys homes and families. It devastates children. It makes light of the holy relationship established by marriage. It even mars the picture of Christ and his church. Illicit sexual intercourse defiles the marriage bed and profanes what God has made holy. And those who are guilty of it face the certainty of divine judgment. And by the way, the future tense of that last phrase in verse 4 indicates that this judgment will be the ultimate eschatological judgment at the end of the age. You know, people today think they're getting by with sexual sin. But listen, the judgment hasn't come yet. It is still future. And of course, those who are in Christ will not face this same kind of judgment. So this is in reference to unbelievers here. And yet, that does not minimize the seriousness of sexual sin, even among believers. Technically, the author of Hebrews uses two distinct terms in verse 4. Adulterers or those who specifically betray their wedding vows through an illicit sexual relationship, fornicators, or sexually immoral people, are any who are guilty of any kind of sexual sin. And together, these two terms cover the entire gamut of illicit sexual behavior that the Bible condemns. There's a second area of personal ethics The author of Hebrews also deals with in this passage, and that is the issue of contentment, contentment. Look with me at verse five. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Stop right there for a moment. This deals with the sin of covetousness. The sins of sexual immorality and covetousness are often linked together in the New Testament. And this is probably because they're given side by side as the seventh and eighth of the Ten Commandments. Guthrie says both the sexually immoral and those greedy for money pursue a myopic self-gratification that takes them outside the bounds of God's provision. But covetousness is a sin that few people would ever want to confess Charles Spurgeon once said I've been in a lot of testimony meetings and I've heard a lot of people share how they have sinned and I've had a lot of people come to me and make confession of sin but in all my life I've never had one person confess the sin of covetousness to me this is also a common sin Although most of us would never admit it. And it is also one that can bring much destruction and shame to the name of Christ. And don't think that this is only something that applies to the wealthy. You don't have to own a lot to be covetous. In fact, you don't have to own anything at all. This is an attitude of the heart. It is a lust for things. It is... The sin of setting our affections on material things, whether we ever own any of them or not. Covetousness is a form of greed that is never satisfied. It is not quenched by becoming wealthy. Those who become wealthy by pursuing the love of money are never satisfied. They always want more. In fact, the wisdom of God recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes declares, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. In other words, the more you get, the more you want. Covetousness is a never ending cycle of greed, and it is one of God's unbreakable laws. And notice the problem is not money it is the love of money and contentment is the antidote biblical contentment is a heart attitude that God desires for all of his children Jesus himself taught in Luke 12:15 beware and be on your guard against every form of greed for not even when one has an abundance Does his life consist of his possessions? Life is not about material wealth. And we as Christians must guard our hearts against any form of greed. There are, of course, many examples of this danger in the Bible, such as Achan, Gehazi, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. MacArthur says, greed is not a trifling sin before God. It has kept many unbelievers out of the kingdom. And it has caused many believers to lose the joy of the kingdom, or worse. Of course, it's not a sin to have wealth. The Bible gives many examples of those whom God has blessed with material wealth, such as Abraham and Job. In 1 Timothy 6:17, we read, "...instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy." Now, that contains a warning to the rich, but it also tells us it is God who supplies us with all things to enjoy. And Paul continues to instruct the wealthy in verse 18. He says, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. We can actually use our wealth to accomplish great things for God. Wealth is not the issue, it is our attitude toward things. It is the love of money that is the problem. Paul wrote, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang that's 1st Timothy 6:10 it is the longing after wealth and the trusting in it instead of god that becomes the problem and the truth of the matter is, the lust for money has led many into all kinds of sin and has brought a whole lot of destruction in its path. David, David counseled in Psalm 62.10, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Jesus himself warned against the danger of making money or possessions, the center of one's affection. He said in Matthew 6:24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have it both ways. Right after this, Jesus tied the love of money with a lack of trust in God. In verse 25, he said, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? He went on to remind them of how God cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields. And he concludes in verses 31 to 33, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall I eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. But going back to Hebrews thirteen five, we see how the author of Hebrews makes the same point. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We can be free from the love of money and content with what we have because God has promised to provide for our needs, and he has promised he will never abandon us. And by the way, this is one of the strongest statements that you can find anywhere in the Greek text. Hobbes says this statement contains five negative participles, two double negatives, both in the emphatic position. In the Greek, this literally reads, not never you I will abandon, neither not never you I will forsake. But the truth of the matter is that the love of money will destroy faith in God. The love of money and the trust in God is mutually exclusive. We love money, and we begin to trust money, and we no longer trust God. It's interesting and insightful that in the New Testament, both the Pharisees and the false prophets were characterized as being lovers of money. In Luke sixteen fourteen, we read, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to him, listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. We're also told in 2 Timothy 3 that being lovers of money will characterize the last generation of people just before the return of Christ. Let's go back and analyze verse 5 just a little more carefully. The word character means manner of life. And the phrase "free from the love of money" is one word in the Greek. It is the word "aphilar gurus." It is an interesting word. It's a com- ba- compound word with three parts. The root of it is the word "phileo," which we have already seen means to love. The suffix "arguros" means silver. So added to the root, it means love of silver. And then you add the prefix, and it means to be free from the love of silver. Loving silver is equivalent to covetousness. So we're to be free from covetousness. And it's interesting to point out that there is only one other place in the New Testament where this word is used... And that is in regard to the qualifications for elders in the church. Elders have to be free from the love of money. You say, why is that? Well, in the ancient world, this was considered a virtue in secular society because those who were in positions of authority would not be tempted to corrupt justice for the sake of financial gain. In the same way, in the church, the leaders of the church were to be free from the love of money so they would not be tempted to make decisions on the basis of financial considerations. James talks about the danger of treating the wealthy better than the poor in a worship setting. And there's always danger in church leadership that we will favor... We will grant favor to the wealthy. And so this is why elders have to be free from the love of money. In addition to that, the love of money among church elders could have the potential of drying up missionary zeal or benevolence ministries. Resources that God intends to be used for the propagation of the gospel could be channeled into that which meets selfish desires. But in Hebrews 13.5, he's talking about Christians in general and the struggle to keep money in its proper perspective in daily life. The one who is free from the love of money is one who has a healthy, mature attitude toward material wealth. This person is one who is content. Now, please understand that does not mean this is a person who has no ambition or is undisciplined or lazy. Contentment is never to be seen as an excuse for slothfulness. Biblical contentment means you're satisfied with what you have. And understand, Christian contentment can be held in every circumstance, all the way from extreme poverty to immense wealth. It is not the amount of the possessions. It is about the attitude of the hearts. Well, Paul expressed the principle of contentment in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can't resist this long paragraph from John MacArthur because it says it so well. He says, some persons love money but never acquire it. Other persons' love of money is in the in the acquiring of it. They live for the thrill of adding to their bank accounts stock holdings or conglomerates. For others, loving money is hoarding it. Misers are not so much interested in increasing their possessions as in simply holding on to them. They love money for its own sake. Still others are more interested in the things they can buy to display their wealth the conspicuous consumer is the big spender who flaunts his wealth and then he concludes whatever form of love of money may take the spiritual result is the same it displeases god and separates us from him Nicer clothes, a bigger house, another car, a better vacation tempt all of us. But God tells us to be satisfied, to be content with what we have. Now, again, this does not necessarily mean that you should never dress nicely or you should not drive a nice car or have a nice house. The issue is keeping it all in proper perspective in being a faithful giver to the eternal things of God, and in living your life knowing that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, as Jesus said in Luke 12:15. Now, I obviously could say a whole lot more about this, but we're running out of time. We need to move now to the last issue that's dealt with in this passage, and that is, confidence. Look with me at verse 6. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Now, this is a quote from Psalm one eighteen six, and it affirms that the plans of the wicked will be thwarted by God on behalf of those who trust in him. But notice that the author of Hebrews declares, we can say this confidently. And all throughout this book, the confidence of the believer has been emphasized. Christians have been told to hold firmly to their confidence. Chapter 3, verse 6. To approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Chapter 4, verse 16. To have confidence confidence to enter into the holy place. Chapter 10 verse 19. And not to throw away their confidence. Chapter 10 verse 35. Now we are admonished to say with confidence the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? You know if you combine all this with the encouragement that we we find at the end of verse 5. The believer can proclaim with confidence, I am not alone, I am not ashamed, and I am not afraid. True wealth is not only freedom from the tyranny of possessions, but it is also freedom from the tyranny of men's opinions. It matters not what men may do. It only matters what the Lord is doing. And if God is with us, we never have a reason to fear what man may think or say. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this rich text. We thank you for the truth that we see in it. And, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it completely. And, Lord, we pray this morning that we as believers, that we would stand firm on this truth, that we would guard our hearts, that we would walk in purity, that we would have your priorities, that we would uh, uh, have the right perspective in regard to money and material possessions that we might have this confidence that your word says that we're to stand in. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us today through it. Or I pray if there are any today who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they might come to know you today. But, Lord, we pray that uh, you would use your word in our hearts and lives right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.